Good morning, and welcome to the Sunday stream at Flat Creek Baptist Church. We are so thankful that you've joined us today, whether you're watching online or you are joining us on Glory FM 97.5. We are grateful for you being here today, and we look forward to worshiping alongside of you this morning. God bless you, and enjoy the stream. You know what time it is. Say it with us. It, it is time for worship. Good morning. We're, we liked it so much we were going to play it again for you. How about that? Well, listen, are you excited that we get to gather together and worship a risen Savior this morning? Amen. Well, look, we're going to sing a special song for you to help kind of kick off this Christmas season officially. How about that? We started last week, but we want to sing a special song for you this morning. This is Noel, the light of the world.
Praise his name. Listen, would you join me for a time in prayer this morning as we begin our service together today? Uh, Father, just want to tell you how much we love you and how grateful we are to be able to gather together in this room today. Uh, as I kind of made my way around and shook some hands, uh, Lord, just, it's, it's just good to see the body of Christ. Uh, Lord, we say it all the time here at Flat Creek that we're a big family, and we really are. Lord, we, just, we genuinely love each other. We just love to be together. And, you know, we go from this place, and we go into our careers, and we uh, go into, uh, you know, our schools, and we go here and there all over the place. But it's, it's good every Sunday, every Wednesday to know there's a place and there's a people uh, that love me. Uh, the world around us may grow crazier and crazier, and the world around us may bring us down, and maybe there are many around us that do not believe what we believe or hold the values we hold or have the morals we have. But here in this place, we're aligned. We're of one heart. We're of one mind. We believe in the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have that motto over our hearts, Keep the main thing, the main thing, the main thing being Jesus. That's who we are as a people. That's our DNA. We just love the Lord Jesus. Uh, we, you know, we, we all have different backgrounds. We all, uh, you know, Lord, some, some have an abundance. Some don't have as much. Uh, some people today, they're, they're in brokenness. And some people today, they're on top of a mountain. You know, some people today, they're, uh, their children are lost, and other people today, their children are in ministry. Some people today have uh, a marriage that, that everybody else looks at and says, man, I hope to have that one day, and other people's marriages are broken. We all have things, all of us. But one thing is always true, that no matter who we are and what's going on in our life, we at Flat Creek love Jesus. And I'm thankful, God, that that is the testimony of this body of believers. May it always always, always be the same. Uh, Lord, I thank you uh, just for all things and the way your spirit works and moves in our life. And we can't give you enough praise and honor and glory for it all. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Let's give our online and radio audience a big hand today. So thankful for all who are joining us all over the world this morning. Listen, if you are in the building and you are joining us for the very first time uh, this is your first time ever visiting Flat Creek Baptist Church. You're going to find a connections card in the back of your pews. It's a green card. If you could please fill that out for us. And on your way out the double doors today, you're going to see a connections tent over to your right. If you could turn that in for us, we have a free gift for you just to commemorate you being here. But that's also our way to connect with you during the week. And so please consider turning that in for us so we can come alongside of you in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, we're going to ask you to stand at this time. And we're, as, as I was just praying, we're a big family. We like to shake hands and tell each other we love each other. We're going to do that now with the time of fellowship as we sing Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. <laughs>
what we're here to do, amen. Bring glory to the newborn king. And I know he walked a long time on earth among us, but can you imagine what it was like to be a Jew wondering when he was going to come? Let's sing that hymn with this in mind. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. certain hymn writers wrote their song if they they knew just the depth of their words the Jews looking for the coming Messiah the first time but in the song with we're ready for you to come take us home listen Pastor Zach's going to mention in his sermon uh, Isaiah chapter 6 the text that we're studying is Isaiah 7 but he's going to mention when Isaiah looks into the throne room of heaven and all the angels are there and they're singing holy 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 we get to sing that one day. We get to sing it in his presence one day, but we also get to sing it now. So let's lift it up and praise Jesus together. Worthy is the lamb who is saying, let's sing it together.
God this morning. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Amen. Amen. Thank you, praise team, uh, today for the wonderful time of worship. Brother Caleb always leads uh, through the Spirit of the Lord, and that's why we love him so much. Listen, if you are here, kindergarten through fifth grade, and you have pre-registered for Children's Church, you can meet Miss Breeze here behind the piano uh, for Children's Church this morning, and so you can head that direction. As they are making their way, uh, you can open your Bibles today to the book of Isaiah, chapter number 7, the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. Breeze, you are taking half of our congregation. <laughs> I guess we'll open it up for adults too. Anybody else? Uh, it's your opportunity. Man, we praise the Lord for all those children. You know, as we're coming to the text today, Isaiah 7, I'm going to bring a message to you today entitled, The Virgin born Messiah, and you know, as those kids are running out the door, I'm reminded of the little girl who started going to Sunday school, and her grandma was taking her, and she got in the car, she said, uh, Momo, I'm just a little bit confused, and she said, what are you confused about? She said, well, which, which virgin was uh, the, the mother of Jesus? And the grandma said, what do you mean, which virgin? And she said, well, was it the Virgin Mary or the King James Virgin? <laughs> <laughs> I tell that joke every Christmas. Uh, every year, right here at the beginning of the Christmas season, I tell that joke. It is probably my favorite preacher joke to tell. I love that so much. Uh, and it's so goofy, it, and it makes no sense whatsoever. But uh, Isaiah chapter 7, the virgin-born Messiah, uh, really continuing in this uh, series of messages that we started last week looking at this this thought or this topic, only Jesus. So what we're doing throughout the Christmas season is we're looking at some of those, those what you would consider more well-known prophecies of the Messiah. And, and the entire intention of this series of messages is that by digging deeper into these prophecies, I, I want to, or my aim is that you would come to the end of this Christmas season concluding in your heart that only Jesus, no one else can hold the title as Messiah. Amen. So I want you to listen to this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7, verse number 14. Very familiar passage. You hear it every Christmas season. Isaiah would say, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Father, we give you all the glory and honor, and indeed, <clears throat> as we just sang, we join with the angelic host this morning who stand in awe of your presence. Uh, who are we to come before your throne with sinful hands and sinful hearts, knowing where our feet have trod this week. And yet we somehow come to the, bowl, to, the, to the throne room of grace and make our petitions known. And, and really the, the mystery of it all is that we can't come on our own. Your word says we must come boldly to the throne room of grace through our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we join with those 
angelic host today saying holy, holy, holy. We recognize that we're saying that not because of anything good in us, but because of who you are. And recognizing that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who even gives us access. He's the only way to the Father. And so we come through Christ. And Lord, we now come to your blessed and holy word and come to really a section of Scripture that has been debated for many centuries. Now, Lord, even in my own study this week, wrestled so much, not with, not with the faith in, in what is prophesied, but more along the lines of how to preach it. The reason being, we've heard it so many times in our life. And, and, and we hear it every Christmas season. Jesus, the virgin-born Messiah, Jesus came born of a virgin. Jesus, born of a virgin in Bethlehem. We, we've heard it so many times. And, and here's the truth. If we, if we don't really pause to look at why Jesus had to be born of a virgin, then we can miss the beauty of the gospel. And so I'm praying, Lord, now that you would clear our minds and clear our hearts of any preconceived notions or any knowledge or wisdom that we may bring to the table this morning, including myself, and we just come humbly through the power of the Holy Spirit asking you through the preaching and teaching of your word to magnify the text and that our hearts might be transformed. As I said at the 8.30 service, I say now, they do not need to hear from Zach Williams today. As a matter of fact, if they hear from me, they will leave empty. Lord, they need to hear a message from you. So I pray for utterance to be given. Uh, that you may use me as your vessel to bring your word to your people. That we might walk away with that single conclusion in our hearts that only Jesus, only Jesus is the Messiah. We say these things in your precious holy name. Amen. Amen. We come to the text today to observe what I consider to be the most important prophecy of them all, the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, someone might be surprised to hear me say that I think this is the most important prophecy of them all. But I, I want you to hear my heart on it before you maybe judge me for saying that. So, so let me say this first of all, that there are many today who say that the virgin birth does not matter. There are even many today that say the virgin birth didn't happen. They say that something else must have taken place. The idea of a child being born of a virgin is absolutely Impossible, they say. Now, you have to understand that, that this rhetoric of the secular world has been the same since the days of Christ. If you jump over to John chapter number 8, you will find there that the Pharisees, those religious leaders in the days of Jesus, actually accused him of being born of sexual immorality. That is the same idea uh, that has persisted for the last 2,000 years and can even be found in our day. As I studied this week on this topic of the virgin birth, I, I found various ideas of the origin of Jesus. And here's two of the ones that I found. One says that Mary, his mother, was a hairdresser who strayed from her husband. That's one of the ideas. Another is that Mary was a descendant of princes and governors 
who played the harlot with carpenters. You see, friends, the argument goes like this. If Joseph was not Jesus' father, then Mary was impregnated by another man. Therefore, she is an adulteress, and Jesus is an illegitimate son. Now, here's the thing for us. It should not surprise us today that these are the opinions concerning the birth of Jesus from the secular world. We shouldn't be surprised when lost people look skeptically at the text, and we should not be surprised when the lost world acts lost. However, what's more surprising today is that there are even Southern Baptist pastors who deny the virgin birth and say that it's irrelevant. In fact, I know of a couple who recently left a local Southern Baptist church. And when I say local, I mean from the Chattahoochee Baptist Association. They left a local Southern Baptist church because their Sunday school teacher taught that the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is irrelevant. He went on to say what matters only is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. It does not matter whether or not Jesus was born again or whether or not Jesus was born of a virgin. And this couple, they went to their pastor and told their pastor what their Sunday school teacher had said, that the virgin birth is irrelevant, and the pastor affirmed the Sunday school teacher. Now, friends, I don't want there to be any doubt in your heart as to where your pastor stands on this issue. I, I told the first service, and I'll tell you this same story. A few weeks ago, I was asked to come and preach over at the Chattahoochee Baptist Association annual meeting on a Sunday evening. So churches from all over our association were there, and, and I stood and I preached. And, and when I got done, I walked to the door, and this lady was standing there, and she shook my hand, and she said, Pastor, I just want to tell you how much your ministry means to me and my husband. She said, we listen to you every Sunday on the radio. She said, our service ends at 12, and let's be honest, you preach till 1230, so we get to listen to you on the way home. <laughs> I'm glad I can be of service. Um, <laughs> But here's what she said to me. She said, we appreciate your ministry, but there's a rumor circulating around town about you. And I said, well, what's the rumor? And she said, the rumor is that you believe that people can lose their salvation. And I, and I looked at her and I said this. I said, well, you go back and tell whoever is saying that, that you heard it from the horse's mouth. You can't lose your salvation. And what I want to say to you today is I want you to hear it from the heart of your pastor, from my mouth. I want you to know unequivocally where I stand on the issue of the virgin birth. If the circumstances of his birth do not happen just as they were prophesied, then everything else in Jesus' life doesn't matter. Amen. Everything collapses. Amen. If Jesus is not born of a virgin exactly as prophesied, then that means he was born with a sin nature. And if Jesus is born with a sin nature, he doesn't suffer on the cross for your sins. He suffers on the cross for his own sins. And if he suffers on the cross for his own sins, the resurrection never happens because the wrath of God has not been satisfied and therefore our faith is in vain and we should be pitied more than anyone. Friends, the virgin birth of the Messiah is the foundation of all other messianic prophecies. If one should come claiming to be the Messiah and they are not virgin born, then guess what? They are an imposter, a false Messiah. You should run from them. Amen. 
In the Bible, there are over 300 prophecies. If this one prophecy is not fulfilled exactly as Isaiah said, then guess what? There's no need in examining any further prophecy being fulfilled in that person. The virgin birth must come first. Now, I want to submit to you this morning that not only has Jesus fulfilled this prophecy, but he is the only one who could have fulfilled it. Amen. No one else. And here's the truth. Because he is the only one who could fulfill it and has fulfilled it, he must be the Messiah. Now, when you come to the text, there are four elements of this prophecy that I want you to observe this morning. You see, there, there's all these different things that, that, are, that are kind of encompassed in this one prophecy given by Isaiah 700 years before the Lord Jesus came. Four things you got to know. Number one, the virgin-born son must come from the house of David. The virgin-born son must come from the house of David. Now, friends, to understand messianic prophecy, remember this. God has never been silent concerning the identification of his Messiah. Since the fall in the garden, God has been shouting from heaven, always narrowing the focus, always narrowing the focus down humanity's family tree in order that you might be able to identify the Messiah when he comes. You will remember that after Adam and Eve fell, God gave a promise to Eve. He said, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. So they knew on that day a Messiah is coming. Soon after that, she gives birth to Cain. And I'm sure that Adam and Eve thought that Cain was the fulfillment of that prophecy, but it did not take them long to realize that Cain had a sin nature. So then they had Abel. And they may have even thought that Abel was the fulfillment of that prophecy, but they knew very soon Abel wasn't the fulfillment. And of course, Cain kills Abel and all hope they thought was lost. But coming to Genesis 5, God begins to show us this, this, this genealogy. Now, many people come to genealogies in Scripture and they say, oh man, that's not for me. I don't know all the names. I can't pronounce all the names. I'm just going to skip over them. But understand that the Bible says that all Scripture is inspired by God. This is why when we walk through Genesis, we never skipped over a genealogy. Because every name carries meaning. And every name is pointing us to something. And so as we look at the genealogies of Scripture, God is saying, not that genealogy, not that line, not that family tree, not that one over there, but this specific family tree. From Adam to Seth, from Seth to Noah, from Noah to Shem, from Shem to Eber, from Eber to Terah, to Terah, from Terah to Abraham, from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, from Jacob to Judah, from Judah to Jesse, from Jesse to David. Amen. God is shouting from heaven, this is the line. This is the family tree from which the Messiah will come. Now, as you come to chapter 7, of the book of Isaiah. Let me kind of give you a background historically of what's going on. So I'm going to give you this here, and it's going to kind of carry us through the remainder of the message. But in order to 
fully understand the gravity of the prophecy and everything that's going to come, these other elements that I'm going to give you this morning, you've got to really have a background and a foundation of what's taking place in the Scripture. So look with me at verse 1 of chapter 7. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. If you go trace the genealogical records in Matthew 1, Matthew 1, you will find those names mentioned of the house of David. Now understand that Uzziah was a good king, Jotham was a good king, but Ahaz was a wicked king. In fact, by the time that chapter 7 begins, Ahaz is already offering sacrifices to the gods of the Assyrians. At this time, Ahaz has already taken his own children and offered them as sacrifice to the false god Molech in the fire. He's a wicked king. And the Bible says that it was in those days that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, remember there are two kingdoms, ten tribes to the north, Israel, two tribes to the south, Judah, he went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. Why? Why would the nation of Israel ally itself with Aram and come against Judah? Well, here's the reason. You see, the Assyrian Empire was the greatest army, the greatest military force of that day. And the Assyrian Empire was coming down against Israel. And they were going to take God's people captive. And so what happens is the king of Israel and the king of Aram, they go down to Jerusalem, they go down to Judah, they go to Ahaz, and they say, hey, listen, align yourself with us. The three of us will go to war against Assyria. But Ahaz has already sold himself out to the Assyrians. He's already bowing down to their gods. He's already sending gold from the house of God to the temple in Nineveh, he's already doing all these things. And so Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to ally myself with you. And because of that, Rezin and Pekah, what do they say? We're going to go down to Jerusalem. We're going to destroy Jerusalem. We're going to kill Ahaz, and we're going to put a puppet king on the throne. Then Judah will ally itself with us. And so the Bible says, when it was reported, verse 2, to the house of David. Notice that it says the house of David, saying, The Aramaeans have camped in Ephraim. His heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. They're terrified. And the Bible says that the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Sheer Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. And say to him, take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin of Aram and the son of Ramalia. So the prophet is to go to King Ahaz and say, don't worry about Israel. Don't worry about the Aramaeans. They got a lot of smoke, but there's no fire. Understand they're just pawns in my hand and they will not, they will not destroy you. They will not take you off the throne in Judah. And God's saying this to wicked King Ahaz. Now notice what it says, verse 5. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it, and make for ourselves a breach in its walls, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Now within another 65 years... Ephraim will be shattered, 
so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you will not believe, you will surely not last. God says, do not worry about them. Within 65 years, they will not even exist. Don't fear. And he says, in verse 10, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourselves from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now, we think that's a pious statement. We think that's made out of a heart of righteousness, but it's not. He's already bowing down and worshiping the gods of Assyria. He knows if he asks for a sign, God will give him a sign. And when he gives him the sign, then he'll be forced to believe in the God of Israel. He'll be forced to believe in the God of David. He doesn't want to do that. So he says, I'm not going to ask for a sign. And then, listen, Isaiah said, listen now, O house of David. You notice the changing of language. He's no longer speaking to Ahaz individually. He's no longer speaking to, to Judah nationally. He's speaking generally to the house of David. Now, you have to understand that this is an intentional prophetic unction by the prophet Isaiah. For God is about to give him a prophecy regarding not only the northern kingdom Israel, but the southern kingdom Judah. As you go across chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9, what you find is that Israel is going to be destroyed within 65 years, the ten, 10 kingdoms to the north. By the time you get to Isaiah 9, the southern kingdom has also been overtaken by the Babylonians. And so Isaiah is prophesying here a day of great distress which is coming. And he's speaking directly to the house of David. And it's very intentional that Isaiah is doing this. You see, he's doing this because he's saying this prophecy is meant to be a great hope in times of peril. That God has not forgotten his covenant that he made with David despite all the sins of Ahaz, despite all the sins of Israel, despite all the sins of God's chosen people. God has not forgotten you. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, you might remember that God speaks to David there and says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Friends, this prophecy is a great reminder of the faithfulness of God. Not only to the house of David, but to God's chosen people. God had made a covenant with David, and it would come to pass just as he had said. In other words, this prophecy is a light against a very dark night in the midst of your sojourn, in the midst of your captivity, when you are dispersed to all corners of the earth. Understand and know this, I have not forgotten you. I made a promise to you, I made a promise to David, and it will come to pass in my timing and in my way. And there's nothing in all the earth that can alter it. The Messiah will come. The Savior will be born. And he will be born to the house of David, just as I said. Friends, the Word of God is such an anchor for our soul. We view the text, we view the scriptures, we even look at prophecies, and, and they're so sweet to our taste. 
And when we're going through these dark times, these distressing times, these depressing times, isn't it a comfort to know that God has not forgotten about us? He has a plan, he has a purpose, and in his timing and in his will, for his glory, it will come to pass what he has decreed. Say, so how do we know? How can we be sure? Well, just as God gave them the promise of the Messiah, and there was to be a hope in a moment of great distress, we know that God made good on the promise. God did indeed send a virgin-born son, and if God will fulfill the most important of his promises, will he not fulfill everything else that his word has spoken about his son and his church? Of course he will. For just as I said, even when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The virgin-born Messiah must come from the house of David. And oh, how that prophecy and oh, how that line speak to the house of David comes such, a, such a, an anchor in the midst of great distress. Which leads us to the second point. Secondly, we see that the virgin-born Messiah must be born in a time of national distress. Now, now, much has already been said about this, but I want you to listen to the language that's used in chapter 7 and chapter 8 to hear just how depressing the moment is. Chapter 7, verse 17. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. And that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will all come and settle on the steep ravines, on the ledges and the cliffs, on all the thorn bushes, and on all the watering places. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor, hired from regions beyond the Euphrates, that is, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and it will also remove the beard. Now in that day a man may keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep, and because of the abundance of the milk produced, he will eat curds. For everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey, and it will come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels of silver, they will become briars and thorns. People will come there with bows and arrows because all the land will be briars and thorns. And then you go on over and listen to chapter 8, verse 21 and 22. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry... They will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. They will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. I mean, consider all that Isaiah has just said. This land that is to be flowing with milk and honey is now filled with briars and thorns. This land that was supposed to be prosperous is now filled with poverty. Israel, the northern kingdom, within 65 years, they're going to be destroyed. Judah, the southern kingdom, within 200 years, they're going to be taken into captivity. And what Isaiah says is, is, is at this moment, is at this moment in this time of darkness and distress that the Messiah will come. I'm going to show you that in the text in just a moment, but let me remind you of what we talked about last week. By the time we come to the New Testament, understand that Rome rules the land. 
The Herodian dynasty, not the line of David, sits upon the throne in Jerusalem. The gods of Greece and Rome litter the streets. That this terrible national day of distress and depression prophesied by Isaiah has come. But I want you to consider for just a moment, not just the national distress, but I want you to consider the depression of the people. Imagine where this must have left them spiritually as the prophetic announcement has actually come to pass. And you begin to realize the reason we're under Roman rule, the region, reason we were taken by Babylon, the reason that Israel is no more is because of our sin. Because of our sin, the sin of our fathers, the sin of our ancestors, God has brought this judgment against us. 400 years ago, Malachi prophesied. And it's been 400 years since a prophet has spoken in Israel. In the temple in Jerusalem, sacrifices are being made, but they didn't heed the prophecy of Malachi. They're still offering maimed and blind animals, not bringing the best before the Lord. Furthermore, they've turned it into a marketplace. They're, they're exchanging money there. There's darkness across the land, a darkness that is felt in every province, in every city, in every district, in every home. But it's during this time that Isaiah says that the Messiah will come. You see, you got to understand that Isaiah 7, 8, and 9 is to be read as one prophecy. Isaiah 7, 8, 9 is a prophecy of the Messiah. So when you come to chapter 9, you've just come out of this, this text in chapter 8, verse 22, that is talking about distress and darkness and gloom and anguish. But listen to what the Bible says here. But there will be no more gloom, chapter 9, 1. For her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now pause right there for a moment. Galilee of the Gentiles. What a significant prophecy. For this is the exact opposite of what you would think. You see, what you think and I think is this. The Messiah, when he appears, will certainly appear in the temple. He's going to be born in a palace. But instead, the Bible says he comes from this region known as Galilee of the Gentiles. Can I remind you of John chapter 7 when the Pharisees and the temple police are investigating Jesus? What do they say? They say, there's no prophet ever arisen from Galilee. Well, hey, if they would just search their own scriptures, they would see that the Messiah comes from Galilee. And Isaiah says from the land of Galilee, this backward, unsophisticated people, they're held in contempt by all the others in, 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 in Judah, yet this is the place, this is the home of the Messiah. Furthermore, inside Galilee is this little city called Nazareth the armpit of Jewish society. Remember that it was the apostle Nathan who asked the question, does anything good ever come out of Nazareth? Yet it was in this place, in the most unlikely of all places, in a time of national and spiritual distress, a day of darkness to a people spiritually maligned, it is in this climate that, Messiah, that Isaiah says Messiah will come. Listen, 
The people who walk, chapter 9, verse 2, who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Listen to verse 6. For a child, the same child that is prophesied in chapter 7 as being the virgin-born son, a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. In a day of darkness and distress and depression, a child is going to be born. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called the Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the host will accomplish this. From Galilee, from Nazareth. The most unlikely of all places. Let me ask you a question, friend. Has anyone ever come from Galilee? Has anyone ever come from Nazareth who could bear these names? Has anyone ever come from that territory that the people call Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, Friends, I submit to you today that there is only one, only one who ever came from Galilee of the Gentiles, only one who ever came from Nazareth who can bear all of those titles, not only those titles, but whose government will never end. Only Jesus, the Son of David, resurrected gloriously at the right hand of the Father, only Jesus can carry those names. Nobody else. He's born of the house of David, born in a time of national distress. Number three, the virgin-born Messiah must be born in the most peculiar of ways. He must be born in the most peculiar of ways. Now go back with me there to chapter 7, and let's go back here to verse number 10. Now remember, remember the context. We already said it. God has said within 65 years, Israel will no longer be. The Arameans will perish. And he says to Ahaz, Ahaz, ask me for a sign. Ask me for a sign so that I can prove to you that this is actually going to come to pass. Ahaz could have asked for any sign he wanted. What did God say? He says, make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Anything you want, you can ask for the sun to stop shining. You can ask for the moon to go backwards around the earth. You can ask for the ocean to dry up. You can ask for the seasons to be reversed. Ahaz, ask any sign you want. Some of you would love it if God said that to you today. 
Any sign you want. Man, you would be just given a list. Here we go. This sign, this sign, this sign. Anything you want, ask. And Ahaz says, no. No. I don't want a sign. He had already aligned himself, as I said, with the gods of Assyria. And so God's speaking directly to the house of David. Gives the most peculiar of all signs. I mean, I said it in the prayer earlier. When was the last time you just really stopped to consider the virgin birth? And really stopped to consider what, what is actually being said here. Behold, the Lord will give you a sign. You don't want a sign, I'm going to give you my sign. And it's going to be the most peculiar sign of them all. A virgin will be with child and will bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. Now there are those today that say, well, Isaiah never ever intentioned for the word virgin to be translated here. He actually meant young maiden. And if you study out the Hebrew word, you will find that the Hebrew word can mean a young maiden. However, when you consider that culturally, you will find that a young maiden is a young unmarried woman, therefore a virgin. So when you look at the word, you do find that it can mean young maiden, but it can also mean a young virgin. Now, there are those who say that this was not fulfilled in the days of Isaiah, or, or excuse me, that this was not fulfilled in Jesus, that this was actually fulfilled in the days of Isaiah. To that, I just ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter number 1. Because some say that it had to be fulfilled right then. But I want you to listen to what Matthew chapter 1 says, beginning in verse number 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill, listen, what was spoken by the prophet through the Lord. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So yes, there are those liberal theologians, there are those secular unbelievers who say that this was not fulfilled in Christ, it was fulfilled in the days of Isaiah. You might even come into a situation in a few days where you go to a Christmas dinner, Maybe it's your job or maybe with your family and somebody brings this up and says, that's not what Isaiah meant. He meant a young maiden. I don't know if y'all ever had those conversations at your family dinner or not, but prophecy. But if somebody should bring this up to you, you simply look at them and say, I am going to align myself with the Holy Spirit. Amen. For the Holy Spirit says through the inspiration of Matthew or through inspiring Matthew to write, that these things were fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, friends, as I said earlier, you have to understand this is the first prophecy which must be fulfilled. In fact, you may be shocked to find that this is actually the first prophecy ever uttered in Scripture. 
the virgin-born Messiah. You say, wait, wait, wait a minute. There have been many prophets before Isaiah, and of course there have been. But go all the way back with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter number 3. Just like when we walked through Genesis, I told you that all roads lead back to Genesis. But you might have forgotten this, and so I want to bring it up to you here. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. And I want you to see that even in the garden, the virgin birth was in the heart of God. The Lord God said to the serpent, Before, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Listen, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and what's it say? And her seed. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, I want you to know something, friends, that that is intentional wording by God. Her seed, not his seed, her seed. Why is that written like that? Well, do you know that that, that, that phrase, her seed, is not found in any other literature on earth? Do you know why? Because everyone who knows anything about human sexual re reproduction knows that the seed comes from the father. The father is the one who fertilizes the egg. But what does God say? Her seed. Not his seed, but her seed. The woman produces the egg, not the seed. But he is very intentional. Her seed will crush the head of the serpent. What is God saying there? God is saying there is one who is coming who will not be touched by the seed of man. What did Romans 5 tell us? That because of one man's sin, all sinned, therefore all die. We have all inherited a sin nature just by virtue of being touched by the seed of Adam. But there's one coming, God says, at the very beginning, Genesis 3, there's one coming who will not have this sin nature. There's one coming who will not be touched by the seed of Adam. Friends, this is the only way that he can be the spotless lamb of God. He must come through the womb of the virgin because he must be untainted by the seed of man. He cannot have a sin nature. Consider just how wise God is for a moment. He went ahead of our sin and made a way for our righteousness, or for his righteousness to be imputed to us. Those of us who had inherited the sin nature of Adam. And isn't it just the most peculiar thing? I mean, friends, if we were to write a book as to how God is going to save the world, how do we write that book? Man, God is coming with chariots of fire, trumpet blasts, Angels, he's coming down to vanquish his foe. And even if we were to say that he was to come as a baby, we certainly wouldn't make him the child of a poor family in the armpit of society. We would write the story in such a way that the Messiah is adorned with jewels from birth, that he's anointed from the day he's born, that he has some halo around his head. But that is the exact opposite of Scripture. He isn't born in a palace. He isn't born to a wealthy family. He isn't born with a halo placed atop his head. He is born of 
a virgin. The most peculiar of ways. What sign? You don't ask for one, I'll give you my sign. The sign of all signs. Understand, friends, it has to be this way. If it's any other way, we would boast in our wisdom, we would boast in our strength and in our power and somehow claim that we are able to save ourselves. But let me remind you of 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse number 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks Seek for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. What could be more foolish than the sign of a virgin bringing forth a baby? That's impossible. What could be more foolish than our salvation being dependent upon that child dying on an old rugged cross? The world says, folly, foolishness. But God has chosen these things to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those things which are strong. And the base things of the world, God, and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Friends, it has to be this way. How do you know that the Messiah had to be born this way? Why is it important? It's because it's God's way. How do you know it's God's way? Because it's the most peculiar way. This could not be drawn up in the heart of man. This could not be devised in the mind of man. Only God in his multifaceted wisdom could ensure that the Messiah could actually bear our sins. He had to come forth through the womb of a virgin. Now, there's a fourth thing here that I want you to see. The virgin-born Messiah must be considered as God with us. The virgin-born Messiah must be considered as God with us. Back to chapter 7 of Isaiah. And she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, if someone were to come today and claim to be God walking amongst us, I mean, there's some marks that we would look for. We would say that he would have to teach loftier truths than any person has ever taught. We, we would say that this person would have to be able to do things that no other person has ever been able to do. We would say that this person has to have the ability to forgive sins. We would say that this person would not be ashamed to receive worship. We would say that this person would have to have the power over life and death. 
Friends, I suppose if somebody came claiming to be God, the single greatest mark would be this, that he would have to rise to a level of humanity that no other human has ever reached. And he would have to be revered in the hearts of all people as something more than just a man. I want you to listen to what James Francis said in 1926 in one of his most famous sermons concerning the life of Christ. He said, Jesus was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. Jesus never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 years old when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. One of them betrayed him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. And he was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property that he owned on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone. Yet today, this man is the central figure of the human race. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever set, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. The mystery of Christ, 100% man, yet 100% God. We see his deity in the text and that he's born of a virgin. This means that he has to be the son of God. We see his humanity in the text in verse 15 and that he's eating curds and wild honey, meaning he's going to come and he's going to eat the food that we eat, drink the drink that we drink, walk the streets that we walk, go to the schools that we learn in. He's going to do everything that we do. Was he God? Yes. Was he man? Yes. John tried to encapsulate this thought in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John 1, 14, John says, the Word became flesh. So the one who was with God in the beginning is now amongst you. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word for dwelt in the Greek is the word tabernacled. He tabernacled amongst us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is something only God the Father has. We beheld his glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, the one who was at the Father's side, he has revealed him. That's what John said, one of his closest disciples. Charles Wesley in the 1800s tried to, tried to bring it all into focus in writing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. He said, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, 
Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Friends, I believe with all of my heart this had to be the most amazing part of the prophecy to Isaiah. Was the virgin birth peculiar? Absolutely. But when considering the nature of the child born, what does he say? God with us. Just go back one chapter. Chapter 6, verse 1 of Isaiah. In the year of King Uzziah's death, Uzziah had been king for 53 years in Judah. This is the grandfather of Ahaz, who Isaiah is prophesying to in chapter 7. When, I, when Uzziah dies after being on the throne for 53 years, people are wondering, who's going to be our next king? Will he be a good king? Will he be a bad king? Will he be a righteous king? Will he be an unrighteous king? Will he treat us good? Will he treat us poorly? Everybody's wondering, who's coming after Uzziah? And it's in that moment that Isaiah is given one of the greatest visions of heaven in the Scriptures. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. And seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he flew, and with two he covered his feet, and one called out to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory, and the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Yet in chapter 7, he says, that God that I saw on the throne is now God with us. I mean, Isaiah had to have thought to himself, this is the most amazing thing. The one seated on the throne will be carried in the womb of a virgin girl. The one who is lofty and exalted will be born in the most humble of ways. The one whose train of his robe feels the temple is going to be wrapped in swaddling cloths. The one whom the angels adore will make his crib with filthy animals the night that he's born. The one who fills the entire earth with his glory. Making the foundations of heaven shake when he speaks. This one, here's the most amazing thing, will be the one who is despised and rejected by men. Isaiah 53. Isaiah is going to prophesy the following. That virgin-born son, the one who is going to be the everlasting God, the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, that one is now going to be the suffering servant, as Isaiah says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearer, so he did not open his mouth. Imagine when he opens his mouth in heaven that the foundations of heaven shake. And yet here is God with us being led to the slaughter like a lamb and he doesn't even open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men. The one high and lifted up is now placed in a grave. He was with rich men in his death. The everlasting father, the one who was eternal, is laid in a tomb. He's done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Isaiah says in chapter 53, verse 9, he's sinless. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand as a result of the anguish of his soul. He will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify many as he will bear the iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Amen. Acts chapter 2, Peter elaborates. Acts chapter 2, Peter says, he was delivered up according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, but you nailed him to a cross and killed him. The virgin-born Messiah, God with us, you killed him. What shall we do? Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Friends, don't you see how they're connected? He has to be virgin born in order to bear our sin. He has to be virgin born in order to carry our iniquities. He has to be virgin born in order to be able to satisfy the wrath of God. If he's not virgin born, then he cannot fulfill Isaiah 53. The virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is of utmost importance. And today I ask you to put your faith and trust not just in a little baby in a manger, but as we always say this time of the year, to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who grew into adulthood a sinless, spotless sacrifice who suffered on the cross of Calvary for your sins and mine, resurrected from the dead, and today is high and lifted up at the right hand of the Father. Put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one. He's the only one 
who can save you from your sins because he's the only one who has ever been virgin born. Let us pray. Father, we love you and give you glory. And we come now to the end of this time. And Lord, a twofold invitation today. For the believer, I pray it's an encouragement, an encouragement to remember that these things that we talk about this Christmas season, they're not just fables and they're not just myths. They're not just good stories to tell in Sunday school. No, this is the eternal gospel of God. This is it. Amen. Jesus had to come this way. If we don't celebrate the virgin birth, then nothing else matters. So I pray that every believer in the house today would be encouraged and that they would look to the resurrected Jesus and worship today, worship and adore. But for the one who maybe came in the door today who does not know Jesus, maybe they're a bit skeptical. They've come in and somebody just invited them and they really don't even know why they're here, but they've heard these things and maybe all their life they've been skeptical about the person of Jesus. But today they've heard this. And today, for the first time in their life, they want to be saved. I pray, God, that today would be their salvation day. And so if you're in the room this morning and you need to give your life to Christ, I'm going to ask you to make a bold move. We're about to stand and sing a wonderful hymn. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. We're going to sing just one verse of this song, The Hour's Late. So I'm going to ask you to hurry. But if you are here and you need to be saved, I'm going to ask you to make a bold move. If you need to be forgiven of your sins and make Jesus the Lord of your life, when we start singing, you want, I want you to come down this aisle and take me by the hand and say, Pastor, today I need to be saved. Don't worry about the people around you. They'll get out of your way. You just come on down here and give your life to Christ. Lord, we give everything into your hands and say this in Jesus' name. If you'll stand as we sing one verse of I'd Rather Have Jesus this morning, you come. I'd rather have Jesus than silver I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus. Won't you come? This is your invitation. You come. Lands. I'd rather be led by his nail pierced hands than to be. thankful for each of you being here this morning listening if you are visiting with us please swing by that connections tent so we can get to know you a little bit better we want to just come alongside of you in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ if you'd like to give to Flat Creek you can give on your way out the door or you can always give at flatcreekchurch.net one quick announcement for you if you are interested in things concerning the 2024 Flat Creek Baptist Church budget okay we do this every year you have an opportunity to see where your money that you give goes and what it's allotted to for the next church year. 
If you would like a budget breakdown, those are available on your way out the door today on the table right here in the foyer. Pick that up. You can look over it. Next Sunday night, if you're a member of Flat Creek Baptist Church, next Sunday night at 6 o'clock, we invite you to come back here, and you're going to have an opportunity to ask about that budget and to vote whether or not that will be our 2024 budget. So please pick those up on your way out um, and take a look at those and come back next Sunday evening. Listen, guys, we love you. We appreciate you. Um, Brother Caleb's on the drums, but he's going to pray us out as we end our service today. Lord, we thank you so much that we've been able to gather so freely uh, in your name and worship you and magnify you and exalt you together. Lord, I pray now that as we go our separate ways, these things that we've experienced this morning, both the, the singing to you and praising your name, Lord, but also uh, studying your word and hearing it uh, presented to us, Lord, I pray that we would take these things and we would apply them to our lives as we go. Lord, I pray we share them and we boldly proclaim them to everyone who will give us ear. We love you and thank you for all you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.
97.5 Glory FM, your family radio station in North Georgia.